Hey everybody, welcome to the Growing Up Fishes podcast, episode 340. We have a really cool guest with us this week. We have Jack Spurko from the Survival Podcast. Thanks a lot for joining us this week. Hey man, thanks for asking me to come. I'm happy to be here. He is, uh, has over 3,000 episodes with his podcast, the Survival Podcast, and uh, he has a lot of different cool permaculture experts and survival experts and uh, everything from butchers to permaculturists to uh, all different types of interesting people and everything in between. Uh, our friend Matt Powers has been on his show quite a few times. Uh, I've been uh, uh, over on his show as well, and he's got a lot of other uh, wonderful, um, you know, thought leaders in the permaculture space on, on his show, and it's a lot of other really great content as well. Definitely be sure to check him out. Um, we'll put the uh, website up uh, on the screen here in a little bit. Um, thanks a lot for joining us. Um, I guess, yeah, tell us a little bit about um, yourself and how you got started with your podcast. You've been, uh, you know, uh, around for a very long time doing the podcast thing. Uh, again, with over 3,000 episodes, that's quite a lot of experience doing uh, doing the radio shows. So uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah, I started back in uh, 2008. So when I started my podcast and people would ask me, like, what do you do? And I'd say I'm a podcaster. I had to tell them what a podcast was. That, that's how early in the game with it. I mean... Adam Curry, uh, host of No Agenda, pretty much invented podcasting as we know it today. And I think No Agenda is like two months older than my show. So, I mean, yeah, it's been a while. I actually started my show in my car. I had a, a client. I was actually a, uh, I was a, a co-owner of a holding company. We owned several companies. And one of them was a web marketing firm. And I had a client that was a financial analyst. And he wanted a website and a podcast. So I bid the job, took it back to uh, our lead developer. And he was like, I can do the site. I can do the graphics. I do everything. He said, I have no idea how to format things for a podcast. And so I'm like, well, I've been kicking this idea around. And I took a $45 uh, little MP3 recorder and a busted-ass Plantronics headset. And I started recording this podcast on, you know, survival and self-sufficiency, self-reliance, homesteading, stuff like that in my car. And I had like a 50-minute commute every day. And I found after about two weeks of doing it, I didn't want to punch a hole in the wall when I got home anymore. I felt like I had vented and let things out and got to communicate with people. And uh, it kind of took off. I ended up with about 2,000 people, two two and a half thousand people at the end of the first year, six months in. By the end of the second year, I had about 25,000 daily downloads. And uh, I'm like, this is better than a real job. So I sold off my ownership stake and I started doing it full time. Uh, my first full time episode was in uh, January 3rd, I think, 2010, like coming back off of Christmas break. And I just been, haven't been doing anything thing else ever since. And it, it's been a tremendous blessing. We've won podcast of the year twice uh, in the general category. And uh, had some great guests on. I had, like you said, I've had all these permaculture guys on and stuff. But I've had on, you know, I've had on influencers like Gary Vaynerchuk and uh, Dr. Ron Paul as part of my, uh, you know, my my expert council now. Uh, it's just an incredible thing. And we've had all these sub communities grow out of it. And it's kind of like it's kind of like permaculture in a way. You guild something up, you let go of it, and it does its own thing. And we've spun that off into even disaster relief organizations and stuff like that. It's just been one of those things that, you know, when you're in your 30s and you start something like that, it's, it's hard to believe at that point. You'll be in your 50s and still doing it. Uh, but I am now, you know, I'll be an old man and I'll eventually someday I'll be like, this is my last one. But hopefully we're a, a world away from that yet. 
that's awesome um what are some of the things that you've learned on your podcast that you've incorporated in your own um uh, homestead or farm that you have there well permaculture is a big one and that's a huge broad subject that's that's multiple quivers and multiple arrows and all of them but when i started my show i was i consider myself a good gardener um, but I also grew up gardening with my grandfather in Pennsylvania in a climate where if you threw a tomato on the ground and came back a week later, tomato plants were growing. You really didn't have to be good. And I had started, you know, gardening down here at my little uh, homestead in Texas. And it was hard. And I was kind of bitching about it a little bit. And somebody sent me this video from Jeff Lawton called Greening the Desert. And at that time, I had heard of permaculture. The only video I'd ever seen on it was a bunch of people rolling around in the mud and shit. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't know how this is going to feed me. And I saw, and this is the first screening the desert. This is the cheesy one. It's like five minutes long. It's like still animation and all. But I was blown away that they could do this in Jordan. I looked out in my backyard and went, you have no room to bitch about anything. You, you know, you, you can adapt to this. And I started learning everything I can. So permaculture has probably been the biggest thing. And learning it not as a series of techniques, but as a design science, because I think there's so many people that get exposed to permaculture today through YouTube videos or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that, but they become convinced, like, say, a swale is permaculture, right? Or a food forest is permaculture, uh, or a key line design system is permaculture, or a hoogle mound is permaculture. When really permaculture is a design science, and these are all just techniques that as long as we follow those ethics of care of the earth, care of people, return of surplus, we're still in the permaculture realm. So I've had people like literally ask me stuff like, so do you think it's going to be like aquaponics or permaculture? And I'm like, well, aquaponics is a permaculture technique, you know? And so I think that that's probably the biggest thing is this design science principle and then incorporating everything because that becomes somewhat omnipresent in your life. So my business is now designed off the same design principles as my homestead is. So we, we try to look at everything we do in the business from that same holistic design component. And when I do consulting, which is very rare because I hate it, um, but I always try to bring that too to whatever I'm designing for somebody, whether it's a permaculture thing or whether it's simply a preparedness plan, like it actually fits everything, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, what are some of the more um, interesting discussions or, um, or different guests that you've had on um, around uh, agriculture on your show? Uh, well, let's see. Joel Salton was pretty cool. Um, I think one of the coolest things he said during our discussion, and this is probably seven years ago-ish, uh, but it was something to the effect of like your grandma always told you if it's worth doing something, it's worth doing it right. He said, I don't mean to disrespect anybody's grandma, but she was wrong. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing wrong and continuously doing wrong and fixing what you're doing wrong until you get it right. Because a lot of stuff that we're trying to do, you know, we, we don't really know how to do yet. So if you can figure out the right way from the beginning, great. Uh, you know, but just don't be afraid to do stuff. Uh, in that same space, Mark Shepard, I've had him on a few times. And he was interesting trying to rein him in and go, listen, man, like most of these people listening to you do not have a hundred acre farm. How do we take what you're doing on 110 acres in Wisconsin and bring it down to something where somebody's got a half acre homestead or something like that? And watching him, like it took him a while. He could do it, 
but it took him a while to shift gears into that because he had gone so hard uh, in that space. You were great. I mean, when you were talking to me about some of the things that we can do, and that's why I asked you to come speak at my event in this November, Korean natural farming and JDAM and stuff like that, and making these specific formulas. And what I liked about you was I get the whole KNF thing, right? With the giant piles of dirt and like, but I'm like, most people are not going to do all of, they're not going to do that much, but you simplified it to here's the components, especially for someone that's worried about a garden, not a farm. And so that was, that was really eye-opening to me because I had people on about the natural farming stuff before and they would talk about it like it was all easy. And then I'd go look it up and go, this is, this is weeks and weeks and weeks of work. This is more work moving dirt around than making compost is. Um, and there's been a lot of, man, it's it's been just so many years. You know, we're talking, I just had my 15-year anniversary uh, for the show this summer. So, man, there's a lot of great people that I've had on. Um, it's, it's, it, that, that's a hard one to really just pin down. But those are a few uh, specific things. Um, I definitely probably would have never gotten into aqua or hydroponics without the show. And that is a, a laundry list of guests over time uh, that got me into that. And that was coupled with a friend of mine who's never been on the show uh, named uh, David. And uh, David has a a decent sized backyard in ground concrete pool. He's turned his whole backyard into nothing but aquaponics and pond. And uh, so he came and helped me build my first system. And it's, as you know, you get kind of addicted to what, what can I do next? Well, what can I do next? And over the years, that's led me to like, I call what I do more aquaculture than aquaponics. I do aquaculture with aquaponics components in it. I, I always explain it as aquaponics is a overstocked, overfiltered system. Right. So you're you're taking, you know, a lot of people are building them on a couple 300 gallon, uh, whatever you call them, the IBC tubs. IBCs. Right. Yeah. So yeah, and that's what I started with. And but now, like I'm running systems. I have one. It's a eight by 16 foot timber frame pond. It's about two foot deep, holds about two thousand gallons. I've got another uh, tank that I built because I just something your, your folks need. I always forget, like I'm on someone else's show. People don't know my history where I live. I cannot dig a hole in the ground at all. It's limestone. It's 12 inches. And in some places, four inches of soil and it's slab. So I build these things out of four by fours with a pond liner dropped in. And I have one that's about 5,500 gallons. Well, you're not going to balance that with grow beds. That's just not going to happen, right? Because you'd have to super heavily stock that to, to do it all with just aquaponics. And then you also have a, you have a return issue there because you don't have a low sump to work out of, right? So I do a lot with like flow through wicking beds. A lot of these bigger systems, I will put some ebb and flow in them and I'll grow low nutrient require stuff because, you know, greens and what have you, or I grow a lot of, old stuff like ancient stuff like groundnut and for the people that maybe are not in the united states i'm talking about apius americana it's a tuber and that it does beautiful in aquaponic systems uh and i i got into aquaponics and hydro both from the audience and from guests as well and hydro was interesting for me because i was not really vibing with that whole idea 
because it's you know synthetic fertilizers and all. But I teach survivalism. I teach preparedness. And being able to grow food in your house is actually a pretty reasonable thing to, to head toward with that. And it I think it actually made me a better uh, aquaculturist because I, I took some things that generally are done on the hydro side that generally aren't done on the aquaponics side. So there's just almost everything I do today somehow is tied into the show. You know, whatever I'm into most is what I'm talking about for the next three weeks, generally. Awesome. Um, you actually have a lot of stuff about duck uh, uh, duck use on the farm. I'd love for you to touch on that because we haven't had a lot of people that know a lot about it. And yeah. we've covered yeah. that quite a bit. And it's something I wanted to, to have you talk to us about. So when we, we got here, like every new homesteader gets a piece of land, we wanted chickens. Chickens for eggs, chickens for meat, chickens, chickens, chickens. And as I said, this property is pretty brittle. We have very thin soils. We have a good three to four months every year where our temperatures average over 100 degrees and we get no rain. Well, chickens scratch and they tear shit up and you make a garden bed and they go in it and they jack with it. And we still have some bantams and they're a little bit softer on the land, though they've reproduced to the point where we need to start gammoing them uh, again into the crock pot. But when we had a big flock of chickens, we couldn't sell the eggs for any money and they were tearing everything up. And my wife wanted to get a couple ducks and I was going to go order them. And she's just one of these quirky people. And I said, well, how many do you want? She said, 22, just like that. No, re you know, and I'm like, I know what you're doing, but if I'm not going to get a straight answer, I went and ordered some ducks. And she said, how many did you order? I said, 22. So we get these ducks in and they're kind of fun. And we're, we have to have their own little duck house and everything. And you know, six months later, they start laying eggs. And we're like, these are really great. Well, we start talking to like chiropractors and stuff. And they're like, you have duck eggs? I, I tell my clients to buy duck eggs all the time. So next thing you know, we've got 180 ducks. We've got a book of business. And we're we're rolling, you know, huge amounts of eggs every, every, every month. We had two or three high-end restaurants buying from us. We had one restaurant buying 80 dozen eggs a month. And so we went to almost no chickens, a couple just to, to, to run around and look at. And I got it into it where I got very scientific with how to manage the ducks. I got down to where we could produce a dozen eggs for $3.15. And that was based on year round cost. And we were selling them for $10 a dozen. And so we were making some decent money on it. And then we started homeschooling my grandkids. And I realized how much my work my wife did by managing the sales channel. Uh, cause she always said, I don't do anything for sales. And like, yeah, yeah, you did. And uh, so we ended up scaling back. We keep about 30 or 40 of them now. Uh, we still have a, like a, a small book of, uh, retail customers, but they've just been the best thing for this property. And I basically manage them like little cows. So, and especially like the land is as harsh as it is, it's improved a lot. When I had that big flock running around and you do the math, I basically had the equivalent weight of a single cow. And so I managed them in a, a rotational pattern. They don't really graze, but they have the same effect as a grazer. They do eat a lot of grass and all. We brought muscovies in and geese in, so that put more load on the grass grazing as well. And they're just, they're no work. I mean, I go put them to bed at night. I open the door of the coop and let them out in the morning. They know what to do. 
and unlike chickens, they're trainable. Like if I want to go to bed early or something and they're not in bed yet, I can go outside and I go, all ducks go to bed and clap my hands. They all run in the coop. So it's just, it, it's been really great. And if you, you know, if you keep poultry, even if you don't primarily do it for me, there will come a time where, where you do need to cull. And duck to me is a superior protein to chicken in, in every measurable way. We don't get a lot of yield off a dedicated layer duck. So we generally will cull a group at a time and we'll make like sausage out of them. But we're making like a premium gourmet dry fermented duck sausage, or maybe we'll make a little duck prosciutto off the breast. Uh, so they're fantastic eating, fantastic eggs. They're, you can monetize them. They improve the land. And the only problem we've had is they crap everywhere, which is fine in the grass, but they come up on the porch and all. So we had to spend some money and fence in the back porch and all. But they're just cool animals to hang out with. Uh, I have seen people, I always, I'm always asked, do you in integrate them with like your aquatic systems and all? The answer is directly no. Because I've seen videos of people that have duck ponics or whatever. Yeah, and that's a dude with like four Muscovy ducks. You start letting a hundred ducks into your pond and it will be green and it will be over nutrient. But one of the ways we actually integrate them, I have a 50 gallon stock tank upgrade of that 2,500 gallon pond behind their house. They can't get in that pond. There is a fence around it. And I grow water hyacinths. I grow azola, I grow duckweed, and that becomes their feed. And to further, what I do is I watch the growth of the water hyacinth specifically this time of year. And if it starts to yellow at all, I have a nutrient deficiency. Well, I have that 50-gallon tank with a drain, and I'll fill that up, and they'll go in there at night when they're on their way back to the house, and the first thing a duck does when it hits water is hit the eject button and crap. And I'll let them spend maybe two days doing that. And I'll open that valve and I'll drop that into that system. And it'll pull that right back up. Right now, I'm having to do it a lot because I also grow bullhead catfish in there. And we, between me eating them, making fish tacos out of them, and the dadgone blue heron that started picking them off, I don't have enough fish in that system anymore. So now I'm able to bring theirs in. So their own waste is providing a huge part of their diet from spring to fall. Now, once we go into winter, we, we can't do that. The other thing I grow for them is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, uh, Chinese water spinach or, you know, Vietnamese water spinach is a ton of names for it. Kang Kong, uh, the Latin name is Ipamira aquatica. It's in the sweet potato family. So the leaves are edible, but unlike sweet potato, so are the stems. And we grow the heck out of that. And that's considered an invasive species or whatever. But, you know, what are you going to do? It, it, it invaded. It showed up here all by itself. Uh, it doesn't survive our winters. I'm not that guy. I'm not the guy that wants to be the dude that brought honey locust into some place and, and turned it into Thornhill. Um, Texas is a big state, as you know. And there are parts of Texas where I would say it is a risk. But to treat a state that's so big, the part where, that's where it's a risk, if we move that part of Texas to the Red River, then the part of Texas I am is in Canada. Right. So I'll, there's times where we just, you know, we do what we got to do. And that is that is a plant that as long as you don't live in a place where it can become a problem, I think everybody should grow it. It's an incredible plant. Nice. Definitely a new one for everybody on the show. That's great. Um, so uh, tell us a little about growing in the heat in Texas. Um, mm. I know it definitely can be a challenge that a lot of people on the show uh, uh, have to deal with as well. 
Yeah. And that's where like, you've said this, Matt has said this, my buddy, Nick Ferguson has said this, like in my summers, I really should be doing more foliar uh, fertilization because you get into points where it's so hot. It doesn't matter how good your soil is. That plant literally can't take certain nutrients. Like it has a hard, plants will have a hard time getting calcium into their system. Uh, I think it's over 96, you know, average aggregate across the day or whatever. And we have, you know, this summer's been a bastard. It really has. I mean, it's just been awful. Um, we, most of our days in August had highs over 108. And then you're still looking at like 98 degrees at like two o'clock in the morning. And so we have what I consider like two Darths, right? Where you just don't really get any production. The difference is if we do everything right, almost nothing dies. It's just not happy and it's just not productive. So for instance, this year, as always, I got a massive amount, chili peppers, sweet peppers, tomatoes, cucumbers, mouse melons, trombosinos. I mean, just tons of production. The heat hits, the production wanes, all the plants look sad. Now I've got pepper plants that are three foot tall, ain't got a pepper or a blossom on them. But now we've turned the corner, right? We get into the fall and, and I, I already know that by the end of next week, those pepper plants are just going to be covered in blossoms. And then it's just a matter of, well, how much can they produce before our first frost? Or this year, it's going to be honestly, how much can they produce before that workshop that I mentioned earlier? Because we're going to do winter garden prep, and that means everything that's still there is going to probably end up going uh, when we do that, just so the students can learn how to do a cover crop and a, a scatter mulch. And then we have, we'll give them a good look at the irrigation systems that I designed this year. But I, there are people that say you can do what we do without irrigation, and I just say they don't live here. They, they just don't live here. And even with my shallow soils, to keep the ducks out, I build my raised beds about two foot high out of landscape timbers. So I've got two foot of soil before you hit the native soil. It doesn't matter when it's that hot. Like if you forget to water one day, you go out and look at the plants in the middle of the day and you go, damn, damn, they're, they're not looking good. So we just garden basically very early spring up to about mid to late June, early July. And we just know we're going to have that July, August, that my goal is to keep the plants alive because I'll get that second flush. And when we get that second flush, like I can see that this year, usually the heat's so stressful, we'll end up losing cucumbers and I get enough cucumbers, I don't need any more. But I grow these little things, they call them mouse mel melons, they're also called uh, Mexican sour gherkins. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. They look like yeah, a the tiny little watermelon. And yeah, then they're also plant, called cuckoo melons. Yeah, yeah, mean. that's exactly the yeah, same one, right? So that plant, those plants will look like they're on the verge of death. They'll just go brown. And this week, it's the, the trellis are on. It's just covered green again, and they'll produce again. And I like those. I take those, and I take old pickle juice, and I throw them in there, and I use them as, like, martini garnishes because they're the cool. Instead of an olive, right, you got these little watermelon-looking things, um, and they're delicious, too. Uh, we grow a lot of, like in the winter, we can grow a lot of things that can freeze kill, but we don't generally get hard enough freezes to kill them. So we can grow like daikon right through the winter. We can grow a lot of lettuces right through the winter. Uh, we had a winter a few years ago that that wasn't the case, but, but made national news. 
We got, you know, we were below freezing for like two weeks. We were below 10 degrees for a high for like nine days. There's a 60,000 acre lake that's about 10, 10 miles from me that froze completely over and dummies were walking on it. Cause I'm like, I don't trust that ice, but y'all go ahead. But other than that winter, most of the stuff that it, you would call a winter crop, if it's established, it will live, especially in good soil. And that's something I've always been good about is building good soil. I've got pictures somewhere of like broccoli plants with icicles hanging off of them, you know, and they survive that. But you got to get them established. So we kind of grow in this three season model and we're just not going to grow the, the, the warm weather vegetables in the winter. And we just keep the, the warm weather vegetables alive until the second flush through the summer. And I know there's some things we could do better, but I'm so carnivorous anyway that, nah, okay, we're not getting lettuce right now. I'll, I'll deal with that, you know. And that's part of the aquatics thing, too. Like, you grow with fishes. I grow fishes. I've got nine, ten, nine to 12-pound channel cats swimming in that one pond out there. Nice. That's great. Um, what other fish species do you grow aside from the channel cats and the, the bullheads? So, yeah, channel cats and bullheads are my biggest ones. I do uh, a lot of, like, bluegill, sunfish, perch, and things like that. I did tilapia. Um, they were okay. I, I actually pushed tilapia to the limit to see what they could do. So I have another system that's built out of some stock tanks. And, uh, like, they're, I guess, the six-foot by two-foot. So they're about 470 gallons, I think. I had them all in one of the tanks in that system. And it started to get colder and colder and colder. And they were the White Niles. And they said they could survive to 55 degrees. 55 came, they were still in there. They were still eating. 50 came, they were still in there. And they would eat, sort of. 45 degrees came, they were in there. They were swimming around. They weren't interested in eating no more. That water hit 38 degrees. And all of them did this. For those on the audio, they just kind of yeah. laid, on, laid on the bottom. And I had this project I was getting ready to do. I had a 300-gallon Rubbermaid stock tank, and I wanted to do a bunch with aquaponics indoors through the winter for content for my YouTube channel. And I'm like, I guess I'm doing it now. So I took the hose, and we have well water, so there's no worries there. And I just filled it up, and I thought, well, I'll throw them in there and see if anything happens. I threw them in there. Five minutes later, they were swimming around. Like, I would have never believed it if I didn't see it. So that was the one group, there were about 50 of them. And I grew them into the next season, and they were monstrous at the end of that season. And, you know, I can make anything taste good, but the quality of the flavor of the fish just wasn't that great to me. Like, it, it, I could lace it with, like, gochujang or something and make it a really good thing. But the flavor from our native fish tends to be, to me to be better. And my other thing is, so native fish are resistant to native parasites, native diseases. They are adapted to native water. They're free, right? They're completely free if you go out and get them yourself. Now, most of my channel cats came from a stocking truck. Everything else has come from local ponds, local streams, and things like that. In Texas, bluegills, sunfish, green sunfish, all your little sunnies, right? They're considered bait fish. We're allowed to go out and catch them with a cast net. So I can go down to like one of the local park ponds. I can throw a handful of corn in there, count to 20, throw my cast net three times and come home with 200 fish to stock. So that's why we tend to use them a lot. I also grow uh, comet goldfish, 
from the, the store. I always cycle systems with them. I'll go down there and buy 50 of them for eight cents a piece and expect half of them to die. The damn things almost never die. You lose a couple, three. And then you end up with these fish that are this big. Occasionally, we'll sell one on eBay. Here's a little hack. There are there are yuppies, if that's the right word for them still. I don't know. That will buy shit if you call it the right thing. If you call it a goldfish, they won't buy it. But if you call it Asian heirloom carp, and you pick one with some cool markings on it, you get about 50 bucks for a, about an 8-inch comet long-tail goldfish. And that, you know, you sell a few of those, you pay for your fish food for a season. And I have some koi. I've got a, a platinum longfin koi in that one big pond. He's probably 36 inches now. He's got a head about like that on him. And uh, his most useful thing to me is when I feed them, I can see what else is in there. Cause when anything goes over his back, you get a good outline of what you're looking at. Cause I don't know, but I don't know if you do channel cats at all. There's something weird that happens. And everybody I know that grows them in smaller systems like this has said the same thing. They turn black. Like when you catch a channel out in the lake, it's this gorgeous, shiny, silver, you know, speckled fish. When they go in that system, they turn jet black. And even though the water's clear, you know, it's a deep pond and all, you can't see them unless they come up to feed. So you see this koi cruising through and you see this thing looks like a little shark just go across his back. So, I, you know, I don't do some for enjoyment. You know, I do some just for food and they're enjoyable too. And then all of my peripheral tanks that are too small or for one reason or another, I don't want, you know, game fish in them are full of gambrusia, the mosquito fish. So that way we can have all this water all over the place and we don't have any issues with mosquitoes, no worse than anybody else anyway. Like we're, we actually probably have less because we have mosquitoes wasting their reproductive energy in our systems. Um, the other thing that I grow in them is I grow a shrimp called a neocardania which is they're affectionately known as cherry shrimp, but now they have all different colors of them in the pet trade. And these are thought of as like a tropical thing. Well, for a while I was playing around with them. What can I do with color faces and all? I had like six 10 gallon tanks with different colors in them. And I was calling out all the ones that weren't good enough. I was doing like a reverse call. And I started throwing them out in my tanks and stuff like that in the summertime. And that way the temperature dropped really slowly. That year that we had everything freeze up, I had to turn the pumps off so they didn't burn up and just let it go and see what happens. Those tanks froze though. They were halfway solid. There was, you know, six inches of water left in the tanks. The damn things lived. They've adapted. So I have like indestructible neocardanias in all my systems. And I take the larger systems at the bottom and I put multiple tanks like waterfall tanks and stuff in. And I have two inch pipes that connect them and run the water back down into the lower end. So what ends up happening is sooner or later, either minnows or neocardanias take a ride through the pipes. And then like the bluegills, that's candy to them. So they'll feed on it. And then in the summer, once we get the top vegetation going with like the, uh, the water hyacinth and stuff, you still find tremendous numbers of them, even in with the larger fish, because they have a place to hide. And then, of course, when the plants die, then they all get picked off. So now the system's actually providing food to the fish on the other end of it. And that's another thing we use for feed. So like, like the, the one with the big channel cats in it, yeah, there's no bluegills in there anymore. I think they're eyeballing some big uh, comet goldfish going, you know, buddy, if I get just a little bit bigger, just a little bit bigger. But what I'll do with them, I'll again, I'll go down to the park pond. And th this is 
for anybody listening to think like you're just raping the, the the land or something these things are so that's why they're this big that's why they're an inch and a half long these things are so overstocked in these little ponds there's billions of them in there they can't grow go down there throw the cast net a few times and just dump a crap ton of them in and then you watch the murder right the channel catfish murder because you just see this big mouth just whoop. And uh, so then, you know, again, we're not spending money on feed and there is no way pellets will put weight on those channel cats like those little bluegills will. There's just no way. So it's, it's oh, that's awesome. Yeah. It's a different kind of, it's a different kind of thing, you know, and I've probably gone to be totally fair. I probably need to decommission some of it. Like I have too many systems to spread out because I get these ideas and then you're a content creator. So it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's probably time to rein a few of them back in, you know. But then it's like, well, which kid do I kick out of the house first? You know, I really right. don't want to, you know. <laughs> I really like using those cherry shrimp and DWC systems. They help keep those raft beds much cleaner. They keep the roots much whiter and keep all the junk off and, and keep sediment off of them and eat all the little detritus and algae and everything in there. And they're awesome. They do a great job. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. especially for like large lettuce systems and things like that, or any DWC system or NFT system, they do really well. And I could see that anything with roots in the water, they're going to do a great job of cleaning it off. Because like, if you want to catch some, like I people come over, can I have some wherever I have floating plants? I just take a dip net and go under those roots. And then you pull that net out and they're just, you know, there's 50, 60 of them in there and they breed yeah, the, like little rats, man. They breed like crazy. Oh yeah, and they're used. They can actually their their preferred temperatures in the fifty to sixty range. Um, they can tolerate high temperatures, but they can also tolerate very cold temperatures too. They're they're pretty hardy. Um, there's another one I really like. These ones are a little less cold tolerant, but there's a another one called um, a Malaysian uh, freshwater spider crab, and they're really tiny. Oh. They're like, they look just like a saltwater spider crab. They're maybe like the size of a quarter, uh, or maybe slightly larger on the largest ones. Um, but most of the time, they're more about nickel size. And they're really cool because they're also very good at, at eating all the junk. And they won't eat the live roots or anything like that. They're very, very good. And they're also in high demand in the pet trade. So you can breed them out, you wow. know, in, in, your, in your huge aquaponic system and then flip them whenever you need to buy stuff for the system. So it can be another great way to monetize. And, and they reproduce system. well in those systems then? Because like, oh, yeah. OK. Oh, yeah. Because like what I've noticed is like um, some of the stuff, like I have these a couple swimming in one of my 55s back here. They call them a bamboo shrimp or something, and they're gorgeous. But like mm -hmm. the the process to get them to breed is like bring the salinity up to this, and then down to this, and do this, and like oh, no, 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 because the stuff I breed just breeds. So I'm gonna have to check into those. Um, yeah, the other thing I've noticed is I have a system. It's probably one that needs to be decommissioned. I have a 50 foot long, 10 foot wide aviary that I put in for quail, and I have a. Uh, a tank in there it's about 250 gallons but it's pretty big surface area and uh, it's shallow it's like a drip an industrial drip tray i got off facebook marketplace and uh, i had aquaponics running out of that using it as a sump because i could get it down low and you know the crawfish season came so i went down and bought a burlap sack full of crawfish for a crawfish bowl and i'm like why don't I throw 50 of these things in there? It's not shallow water. It's moving. The, and I had a bad string algae problem. Two weeks later, there wasn't no string algae. They're the only damn thing I've seen that'll eat string algae. And they eat the hell out of it. Unfortunately, I lost them all 
there was a piece of the wiring that ended up peeling back on the aviary and the raccoon figured it out. And uh, it was a couple of days before I figured out that's what was going on. And there were little claws laying everywhere, but, uh, and that's something like anybody, when you start talking about doing this stuff, there's a big difference in doing it in like a warehouse with lighting or a greenhouse and doing it outside. Like one of the reasons I try to build all my tanks deep is one, it helps with the temperature fluctuation. But the other thing is it helps with the big giant bad bird, uh, like the blue herons, because those fish can get down deep and that bird can't wade. And that's why they clean me out on the one behind the uh, duck house is because they can wade in there. And I put as much cover as I could in, and they still really totally clean that thing out on me this spring. Uh, what I do for cover in my ponds, I'll take center blocks and I'll set them so that the holes are like caves. And then I'll take 16 inch by 16 inch floor tiles and I'll put that like a table. And then the fish have stuff that they can get under. But even that bird figured out he could move the, the tiles. And so, I, you know, I've done that also with like the three foot long ones that look like wood to make shelving for plants. Like my big pond has plants in pots all around the circumference and they're like three cinder blocks high. And then they have these tables over them. And so, you know, you down at Lowe's or Home Depot or whatever, you're like, well, I need the cheapest ones. Well, what kind of pattern? I don't care what kind of pattern. I need the, like, whatever you have on clearance. And that's a, that is a great way in outdoor aquatic systems to build that shelving and create that structure. And then, like, you know, I, I, some of my systems, I grow a lot of bluegill in. Bluegill are violent fish, man. They, they are, like, one of the most aggressive critters. If you ever kept them like a tank where you can watch them. So when I do my uh, cinder block, I'll alternate the direction of the holes in these towers that I build. So the bottom ones may be going front to back and the next one's left to right. The next tower over, I'll, I'll switch it so that when they go in their little cave to be angry fish, they can't see each other. Because as long as they have their little place, they're chill and you have less fighting and then you have more a higher survival rate and you get a higher growth rate. You get more weight on the fish. You know, so like those are little things you learn by doing stuff. I think some of the stuff like I'm looking forward to you being here because some of the stuff I'm doing, I don't know that anybody's done it that way. It doesn't mean it's right. It just means nobody else has done it that way. You know. Oh, that's really cool. Um, I was just going to say on the hair algae, I've also found that the Chinese high fin sharks, um, they also call them pond sharks sometimes at the pond stores. They do really yeah. well with the hair algae. Really? Um, and, and then as far as the bluegills go, uh, what happens a lot of times, a lot of people get a lot of bluegills and so they're overstocked their bluegills yeah. and they'll end up losing like one a week or one every couple of days, especially as they get bigger because they start to fight and then they get like fin rot or whatever from beating each other up. Um, if you feed them the lactobacillus curds, uh, it helps because uh, it's protein and fat, basically. Um, it helps speed up their growth, but it also helps um, because you have all this like free floating lactobacillus in the water. It prevents the secondary fungal infections on the fins. So they, you know, unless they really get beat up real bad. they, they tend Where to do you bounce. get this? Where do you get this? So you can make your own. So um, you basically take rice wash to so take a uh, fresh rice wash. You give it a quick wash to get the silt off of it, basically. Pour that out into a separate bowl, put a piece of cheesecloth out uh, with that on top of it outside for a couple of days in the shade in a, in a well aerated place where it's going to get some windborne uh, yeast and lactobacillus. Uh, and then you'll notice they'll start to get a little bit of a film on top. That's, then it's good after you know a day or two. 
And then you're going to take that, pour it into a, a bucket. Um, I like to do about a half a gallon. Just real quick, you're using the water here, not the rice itself, or you're using the rice? Yes. You're using Just the, the water. water. Okay. All right. right. Go ahead. So then you pour the about, if you're going to do a five gallon batch, you'd pour about half a gallon of that into your bucket. Um, I like to also take um, a couple of like kefir grains. If you have any fresh uh, milk kefir grains, toss them in there as well, because it just diversifies the lactobacillus species. Uh, and then put four gallons of uh, milk, fresh whole milk in there. Okay. And what will happen is uh, the yeast and the, the lactobacillus and the bacteria will break it down and separate it. So the top part of it will come out like cheese and you can actually take that curd uh, I like to feed it to the fish, feed it to your dogs, your livestock. It's a good probiotic for their for their gut. Um, you can also take it, press it, and actually make cheese with it too, if you want to, um, for for home cheese making. And then you're going to take what would be the whey, and if you're making cheese below that, and pour that into your aquaponics system at a dose of one to one thousand to help prevent things like E. coli, uh, improve uh, fish growth and plant growth, and also eliminate silt and um, other junk that builds up in the system. So you said it would uh, help with uh, fin rot. Would it help with like fin fungus too then? Because I had that oh, yes. one year and it eventually cleared and it was a freaking nightmare. It was yeah. absolutely a nightmare. Uh, same thing with like, you know, the catfish sometimes get that like weird fungal infection on their yeah. skin. Yeah. Helps a lot with that as well. It's a yeah. great organic um, like antifungal treatment for fish. And it's something that, you know, you can, you can dose a whole bunch into the fish tank right away. Just take the huge block of curds and just dump it in there. Let them dump feed it on in. it. And and they're swimming in the medicine, you know what I mean? As they're getting fat, yeah. it's like eating butter or cheese to the fish. So every everybody wins. So I've had really good luck even treating, um, there was an 80,000 gallon uh, commercial lettuce system that had E. coli in it um, uh, that it tested hot for. And uh, we managed to treat it after 30 days of lactobacillus treatments at a one to, 1, 000, uh, 1 to 800 uh, okay. ratio. So even uh, in an emergency situation like that, you can eliminate it from a system without bringing the whole system offline and bleaching it and all the other crazy crap that you would have maybe in a yeah. typical protocol for that. You can leave the system online, treat it with probiotics and it'll come out clean just the same. So, yeah. Cause that's it, the, the system I had it in was that big pond that, that uh, 12 by 12, you know, it's like 6,000 gallons or 50 catfish in there that are bigger than my head. And I, you know, if I did drain it, where am I going to put them? one of my other systems that infect that, you know, and what I ended up doing was I just did massive water changes and massive water changes and massive water changes. And thank God I have a well and I'm not happy because I did find a treatment for it, but it was an oil. They named it something else. When you, when you tracked it down, it was tea tree oil, but the amount you needed to treat something like that, it wasn't financially worth it, but I probably could have afforded, you know, eight gallons of milk no problem and some rice water that's, that's oh yeah that's and you can use it as a foliar too to prevent um powdery mildew or botrytis or uh septoria that's really good for treating all those plant diseases as well see this is why you're coming here in november <laughs> yeah. for stuff like that right there you know um yeah and i know you do stuff i think you call it like a double flush or something uh ebb and flow bed where you're you're growing in mm -hmm. soil on the top and uh we do some stuff that's very similar i just do a flow through wicking bed so i'll do like a bunch of lava rock and french drain pipe and i've done that because the first ones i built i didn't put the french drain pipe in the bottom and i would get sooner or later roots would get through the uh weed blocker layer and then you'd have 
stuffed up uh, bottoms because we're actually flowing water through that system. And once we went to putting in, I just take the cheap thin walled four inch pipe, put it on a chop saw and chop it into whatever length the bottom of the bed is and line the bottom and then throw the lava rock on it. And then we'll do a layer of weed blocker. And then I do a two inch layer of perlite. And then I do my soil mix from there up. And those have been fantastic. We do like, I have four of those and mostly I just grow medicinal herbs in them. Um, and that's, like my biggest medicinal herb I grow here is, is comfrey. And that, that saved my butt today. I was, uh, one of my systems, I grow this aquatic mint in it and it's gone freaking nuts. And, you know, look at the sump in that system and it's holding a little less water than it should be. Uh, and, and that means that it's probably had an overflow event somewhere. And so I'm, I'm tracking it down. I realized what's actually gone on is one of the emitters is not spraying so I just open the valve to clean it out and put it back to the restriction I want. And as I'm doing that, in that aquatic mint, there was like a fleet of fire ants. And so if you live in the South, you're familiar with them. If you put comfrey on fire ant bites, I mean, as soon as they happen, it's still going to itch, but it will never, you know how they get like the next day where they look like pimples and they're around for like a week? That will never happen. And comfrey is the only thing that I found that will do that. So, yeah, and I've got in that system, like I said, that iPremier Aquatica, I've got three plants that I started in solo cups that I, I was like, I'm going to get them into the other system sooner or later. And I put those solo cups on a shelf in an oval stock tank and I have trellis behind the wall. And just out of those three little cups, it's like a 20 foot building is covered in this stuff right now. And that's that's a green you can eat every day. And that's. All it is is three little cups. I mean, th 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 that's why I love the, I know you do too, the aquatic stuff. You can do things with it that you just can't do otherwise. Yeah. And, um, so I'm a big fan of the, the dual root zone method and you can even run like that's a really what it was, acidic, yeah. Yep. You can even run like a, a really acidic root zone for like berries or something that wants a really weird um, nutrient profile and in mm. the main part of its root zone and then still feed it from the same feed as you do all the rest of the plants in the system, right? And yeah, the kind of the best of both worlds. That's what's so great about it. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we're actually that far apart in what we're doing. Just you're doing an ebb and flow with it, and I'm doing a flow through. And what I do with most of my flow throughs, they're actually timed. So all I want is that water up to where it will wick in the system. So most of the year, I use a little $8 century timer, 15 minutes. The water runs through it for 15 minutes. That's going to get it up to that level when that timer stops running it'll drop back down to whatever the, the the set is on it and it won't go off again in lamar so that pump's only running once a day for 15 minutes some of them where it's a little bit hotter once we get into summer i'll set it so it runs eight o'clock in the morning and four o'clock in the afternoon so it'll go off twice and then we talked about this i run all my ebb and flow on timers i got off of bell siphons and i think part of it is because I do have so much going on. And if you don't check that shit every day on a siphon sticks, you can come back and like all your plants are dead or flooded or whatever. And once, once I went to timed systems and that's what I was mentioning earlier, I picked up from the hydro side. So what I, what I do for those that maybe understand ebb and flow, but don't know what I'm talking about. Instead of one bulkhead or uniseal in that bed, I have two and one pipe is flush with the bottom, or it can be a little higher if you want to hold your water a little higher in it. And I have another uh, bulkhead in it with a pipe that will be your standpipe. That'll set the level in 
your ebb and flow bed of where the top line of your water is. That pump will kick on, water comes in through that lower hole, fills up to the top hole, starts overflowing. And when that pump shuts off, the water goes back through the delivery pipe and goes out through the pump. And I usually put a swing valve off the pump to one, throttle back how much pressure is going into the bed, but two, it lets that water out easier. And I'll run those on a 1545. And I believe you said something about shortening pump life. That's not been my experience because that pump, if it's running 1545, is only running 25% of the time it would otherwise. And one hack I'll give people, if you have multiple pumps in your systems, standardize, pick a model. I run small pumps and big pumps. I want, and you don't have to run the ones I'm running. I'm just telling you what I run. I run an Allied Aqua 550 as my small pump and a Danner uh, 3000 as my larger pumps. The Danners will give me two and a half, three years. Lower ones will give me two and a half years. I've got ones that are on timers that are five years old and it's still running. But the reason you standardize, I have a couple of each on the shelf at all times. Everything's done with either dry fit or uh, whatever you call those couplers with the little screw Union. on them, right? Union joint. Union joints, yep. And if a pump goes out, it's five minutes off the shelf, new pump in. And then when you standardize, I'm sure you've had times where pumps get gook and schlick all on the intake and you need to clean it. And you don't really have time right now to clean it, but you need to clean it. If you standardize, you just take the cover off your brand new pump that you ain't used yet, swap the cover out, stick the cover in the sun for a day. All that stuff will dry. You hit it with a garden hose and put it back. Right. So having though you got to have spares. You know this pumps die. And that pump, they sometimes they die like you're like, oh, that pump's gonna die. I should go ahead and replace it. There's times that pump was running perfectly yesterday. And your wife comes in and goes, is the water pump supposed to be running? The water pump is always supposed to be running, right? So always have those backups, man. Always. Yeah, I'm a big fan of standardizing them all with the union joint above it. So you can yeah. quick disconnect the whole pump and, and clean it easy. Yeah. Um, I really like the Danner pumps. I've used them for a long time in the uh, aquarium industry in saltwater and in freshwater and in ponds. Uh, and for the most part, they're pretty good. I also like... Um, for bigger systems, the Sparis pumps from Pentair are, are kind of my go-to. They also have a nice basket. You can just hot swap the basket out with a second yep. one and, and turn it right back on and away you go. Have it down yep. for 30 seconds if you want to. So, Yeah. They're, yeah. They're the also Danners, cool. What's nice about the Danners for the ponds, they, and again, they're like a 3,000-gallon pump. Um, you plug a kilowatt meter into it, and they're, they'll pull between 87 and 93 watts. That's You're moving a lot of water for equivalent to a 100-watt light bulb. You know, because you got to factor that into everything you're doing. What's your cost? Oh, for sure, yeah. And um, and uh, that's one of the other things too about I really like about the Sparis is that you can uh, ramp them up or ramp them down. If I shut off part of the system, I can just ramp it down, and it maintains the same PSI across the rest of the system. So I don't have to oh, that's cool. All the valves and all. That's um, cool. So, yeah, that's it makes cool. it a little bit easier to manage or. Hey, uh, I need to clean the system, so we're going to shut down everything but the fish tanks. We can reduce the the pressure on it, you know, with a push of a button, which is really nice. The other cool thing when you can see the voltage on it is that if it's pulling a higher voltage than the normal range, um, hey, it means the pump is clogged or there's a line clog because it's working harder than it needs to. So you can diagnose a lot of problems really quickly just by looking at the panel. 
That's cool. That makes me think of an idea my buddy and I had. We never built it, though. When you have a system with like a ton of different delivery points, inevitably those points will get clogged with debris and you end up having to go clear it all out. Our idea was, let's say you had 10 delivery points. You did a series of solenoids that once a day would run and shut all but one. So like number 10 would be open and everything else would be shut. And then nine would be open and everything else. And just for a few seconds, each one of them would have full pressure. Um, and that seemed like a way that would reduce uh, the amount of, you know, human maintenance required. That looks like a cool pump. It's expensive, but it's probably worth it. Oh, yeah. That's we use these on the, on the commercial uh, systems. Um, yeah. on, uh, on the, um, shoot, you just said something and then I lost it. About the celloids? Oh. Yeah, yeah, so that's called an indexing valve, um, and I've, I've used those in Jamaica when we had to use very little water because you only get the water that you get from the rain on the north side of the island. It doesn't okay. have groundwater like the south side does. So um, uh, we had to use those because we only had a set amount of water, uh, and uh, they're really good, but the problem is if it fails, you lose four rows of crops instead of one uh, uh, with a traditional setup. So, they're again, they're really good if you're in an extreme a water conservation environment but uh they definitely can cause problems you know if you do have it just put like a a little um uh, checker on it to check the voltage so if there's a problem it'll alert you uh, and those those are pretty easy to come by in various means these days cool and there are some questions here if anybody wants yep. to if you want to take some of those so i think sure, someone's just... asking about my irrigation system there Yep, I was just going to ask those. Uh, it says, uh, my irrigation sucks. Um, would love Jack to elaborate on his system design if he could. It's very low tech and it's it's fully semi-automatic, right? Um, all I ended up doing in my primary garden beds, I took some half inch pipe and I laid it out. I might actually have, I don't even know why this is here, but for those on the video that's how my beds are designed they're in an l shape and they're 12 foot on the back side eight foot on the front side and this right here is the pipes and the emitters and right there's where so every one of these beds i knew i was going to do something someday so i had a stand-up piece of one inch plumbed to my well in each one of these four beds that go around that big tank and i took i think it's a three eighths it's whatever size everybody recommends when you do this for pvc pipe drill and i drilled alternating holes where my plants would go. But the cool part is at the end of the bed where that stand-up pipe is, I hardline plumbed in. Each bed has its own like egg timer irrigation valve. So these are the ones that you buy. You put your sprinkler out and you set it for 30 minutes and you walk away at 30 minutes the timer stops. So that allows me, and all four of them can run with the well pressure. I have no problem. I go out every morning. I turn them all to 30 minutes and I walk away. And it's, it's more like soak than drip, but it's designed to be a drip-like system. And that saved my ass this year because manually irrigating was just not going to happen. Um, I may be able to find the video on it and you can maybe play it muted in the background. It'll make sense to people. Sure. Uh, I would just pull it up here for anyone else wanting to see those other pumps, these Danner pumps. You get a dannermfg.com is the other one that I recommend quite a bit. What I'm going to do, I'll use the chat and I'll send it to you and let you handle how you want to share screen with it. 
I'm not real familiar say, with doing it as a guest. You can just hit the, the screen share button uh, in the bottom center there, and then uh, should work just fine, or I can handle it for you if you want. I just gave you the link if you just want to use the link. Oh, perfect. That way I won't perfect. break nothing. But that's right. that's that's my system. That's like a walkthrough of it. And it's sitting on top of uh, weed blockers, so, and it's not planted yet, so it makes it real easy to see what's going on there. And uh, each each line in the system has a swing valve, uh, so that I can control it. And right below the timer, there's also a valve. That's probably the most expensive part of it is how many valves go in it because valves are expensive and pipe is cheap. Um, that is not it. There it is. There it is. Yeah. So that's that's how that runs. And but make sure you put a valve right below your timer because you have to swap the timer out and being able to cut the water off when you have to do that is a good idea but run the pressure full pressure on the downward side of the valve you can see right there on the screen and do your adjustment with the valves on your individual legs and then everything up until you come out of those valves on the side should be glued ask me how i know with a wet face right so i try i like to dry fit everything i can but sooner or later it will blow and go on you the, the the low pressure side of the system, you can dry fit everything. And that's what's nice because those beds, I did run weed blocker in them this year. So when we go to go to fall, I won't run that weed block. And so those pipes, you just pull them out, throw them on the ground, do your service work and drop them right back in. And that has been probably the best thing I've done from an irrigation standpoint. I have really hard water. I have hard water out of the ground. My water out of my water collection rain tanks is hard. Everything's alkaline. Everything's calcium. And regular drip lines just clog. I don't care how you filter them. I don't care what you do. They just clog. The holes you get with these pipes are large enough that they don't clog. And if they do clog, it's two seconds. Like you notice an emitter is not working. It's two seconds with a piece of wire. You poke a hole in it and it starts working again. And that has worked fantastic. So there's the valve that I was talking about and a couple little fittings from Lowe's and, you know, that, that'll make that timer be able to fit in there for you. And like I said, you can see the other valves just at the top of the screen there. That's where you set your pressure because if you turn it all the way up, it'll, it'll blow out. The other thing is if you're using those valves for anything and you have hard water like me, buy yourself a box of the washers with the screen filter on them because about every three or four months, they'll form almost like, it almost looks like somebody put silicone in it. And it's impossible to get off the screen that's on the in, input side of those timers. And this is obvious, but I did one upside down anyway. That Those, those uh, timers are one-way flow. They don't go the other way. They only go from the female side to the male side. Awesome. Yeah, I've also had really good luck just putting Vaseline um, on the ball valve, getting them nice and greased up before you install them. Yeah. It gets you maybe six months to a year of, of loose, or at least a season worth of, of loose. Uh, Laval's not what I have the problem with. It's the, it's the, uh, again, it's so on the, on the timer, on the, on the female side that you would attach to your hose bib normally to use it, there's a, a hose washer and it has a little dome shaped uh, piece of like wire screening and it's designed to keep solids from getting into your system. And what happens is if you have hard water, the calcium will over time deposit on that screen 
and you turn it on and no water comes out and you're trying to figure out what's going on and all the other ones are working. And when you pull the timer out, you'll find this. It's it looks less like silicon. It looks more like somebody paper macheed the thing over. So a box of those washers, like 50 of them is like three bucks. So that's another thing that goes on the shelves. Nice. Definitely cool. Yeah. It's a neat design. And I don't get credit for it. It's there's tons of people did it. I just did it a little bit differently is all. I put the timers in is what I did. And then you can see that that's that big pond right there. So that feeds those lines? No, that pond and that's oh. everybody always asks that the, that pond and those beds are not connected. It's just an architectural landscaping type thing there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because getting water from that pond and back into it considering that it's you know, it's it's above grade that high. If it was in the ground, I would I would do something with it. That that, that but that irrigation system's just run off my well. Oh, that's yeah. 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 That was a cool way to answer that question for sure. Yeah. yeah. And then somebody else is asking about breeding bullheads. I don't yep. do anything. I put them in the pond and they breed themselves. Um for the catfish. And I don't know if I've ever successfully had, like I haven't had any little catfish, little channel cats come out, but I've had in, I have another one that looks just like that. It's a little bit smaller. And every spring I have baby bullheads in there. What I did was take some flower pots and put wet concrete on one side of them. So they would be weighted down on that side and they would lay on their side. And I put about 20 flower pots in that pond as structure on the bottom. And catfish like cave-like systems of breeding. I think I think that's where they're breeding in. But I've never put any that are you know an inch long in there, and I've seen plenty of them. So they're they're doing what fish do if you give them the opportunity. I haven't put in any structure like that in that larger pond, and so I don't know if the uh, if the channel cats are breeding in there. The green sunfish were breeding in there because I had little green sunfish everywhere. Until the cats got really big. And now, like I said, there's hardly any bluegills or sunfish in there at all. But I don't go out of my way to breed bullheads. I don't need to. I can. So if you want to catch bullheads at like a park pond or something, go down to Walmart, buy the cheapest freaking shrimp they sell. Take a little Tupperware thing or something like that. Throw a bunch of them in there and bury them in salt. Just plain everyday salt. Just not any chemical salt or anything. Just plain table saw give them about a week and rinse them off and put them in a ziploc bag they will last forever they're like a piece of beef jerky bullheads freaking love it and they can't steal it so you take a knife and you cut a little nub of one and i'll catch five or six catfish on one piece of shrimp or when you use fresh shrimp you catch, you know, one catfish for five or six pieces of shrimp because they're little and nibble it off. So I have these park ponds. I'll take my grandson down there, you know, toward the end of the evening, and we can come home with 40 or 50 of them in an hour. So I just don't need to go out of my way to breed them. And what I like about that, since I have so many systems, what I'll do is I'll go catch a bunch of them in, in these ponds. Again, they're all, everything's, you know, I can't enough food. There's not enough stuff in there. Or there's too many little fish in there is what it is. So you'll catch them, and we'll just basically keep the ones that are about three and a half, four inches long. We don't keep them if they're any smaller, and we don't keep them if they're any bigger. Because they're the most cannibalistic sons of guns I've ever seen in my life. 
I put like eight of them in a 40 gallon breeder that I have as like a classroom system in my garage. And I had like all these caves I built for them and shit. It was all cool. And you hardly ever saw them. And finally at the end of the season, I'm like, well, I need to get them out of there and do something else with it. So I pulled all that rock. There was one. There was one big one because he ate his seven buddies. He'll eat the littlest one and that'll give him a boost and he'll eat the net. He'll work his way up the chain. So if you put them all the same size, a lot less of that happens. So then you can grow them to a certain size in like a, a, a 400 gallon tank. And then at the end of that season, you can harvest your bigger system, drain that, that other tank down to where it's easy to net them out, take all your structure out and dip net them and pitch them in the next one. And the next spring replenish them. And to me, that's, I like fishing anyway. There's tons of them available. Um, I didn't do that the last couple of years. I just kind of let everything go the last couple of years. And I've got bullheads that are freaking 16, 17 inch bullhead caps. Of course, you know how they are. They're half head, you know, <laughs> and I really need to get more into black soldier fly to deal with heads and guts and stuff like that. But that's another thing to do, you know. <laughs> I always say good luck with hot dogs. Well, oh, yeah, hot dog works. If you want to improve your hot dog use, throw some strawberry jello on it. It'll cure them. It'll make them hard. And it's a lot harder for them to steal them and they like it. I'm catfisher from Jacksonville, Florida, way back. I mean, <laughs> I grew up on eating catfish. And if anybody tells you bullhead ain't good to eat, ain't ate bullhead. Um, <laughs> it is a fantastic fish. I will say the one thing about it. You do not want to take them for food in the warmer parts of the year where your water temperatures are higher. The texture of the flesh gets a little bit mushy. so harvest them for food like once your water temperature is in that lower range you know when it's in the you know, 70s even lower 80s and down and the cooler the better if you do harvest them in the summer uh salt them a little bit and let them sit for a couple hours before you cook them that'll pull some of the moisture out of them firm the flesh up and then the other reason people don't like them is they're a pain in the ass to clean well go to youtube Search for shucking, like shucking corn, shucking bullheads. And you'll see this old man named Shotgun Red with a little bitty pocket knife show you how to clean a bullhead in about 30 seconds. And basically that little fin on the top of the tail, you put your knife under there and you kind of slit up his back till you get to that top one that'll stab you in the hand. You put the knife down in and you break the spine without cutting into either side of the skin. You take a pair of $2 hardware pliers and you grab the spine and you hold the head and you pull in different directions. The head, the skin, and the guts will be in your left hand. And in your right hand, that pair of pliers will be a skinned, bone-in, perfect little fish to cook. Take that fish and cut about four slits on both sides of it because catfish have fat and let some of that grease render out. Fry it, grill it, smoke it, do whatever you want. They're fantastic. My wife's picky. And the last time I cooked them, I made like four each for us. And she took three on her plate. I ate my four. And I'm like, are you eating your last one? She's like, yes. <laughs> so if my wife will eat it, it's it's good to go. That's great. I also used to do garlic uh, dough balls. So I take like tuna mm -hmm. and uh, clam or crab or whatever meat you get, like in the canned small section of the grocery store. Yeah. Like all that can of each, throw it in a bowl get like the easy can pop dough balls like the biscuit dough uh that has the garlic in it get that throw it in there make it all until it's kind of like a wet dough with the meat yeah. in it 
and then take garlic powder and use it to dry it out as, as like a, a flour replacement until it's the right consistency again, dry wise. Then take all your little leader hooks, put them uh, in the little balls, put yeah. each one in there, yeah. and throw them in the freezer until you're ready to go. Ah, and you put that next to your beers, keep your beer cold when you're fishing. And you just pop one out of it. Yeah, and then they're frozen, so you can cast them out really hard, as hard as you want. They'll gotcha. stay on there, and then they'll melt and release the snow when they hit the bottom. And man, I, I've I was fishing up on the Klamath River in California one day with some people that are you know born and raised up there. And they weren't catching nothing, weren't catching nothing. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot we have those in the cooler. I grabbed them. I started catching fish after fish oh, after yeah. fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hot dogs were a big thing when I was a kid for, for bullheads. And you sit right next to somebody else fishing. They Like, you've got to, like, know all these little different baits because they'll turn on and off to different things at a time. Like, the cheapest bait you can make for them is deer. You take deer corn, boil it for about 30 minutes, and it'll soften up somewhere you can get a hook in it. And throw it in a Ziploc bag and do the same thing I said with the hot dogs. Throw some strawberry jello on it. And I've tried other flavors of jello and it all works, but they prefer strawberry. I don't, you know, they like strawberry better than cherry. And I don't know about lime. I never tried that. If I was a catfish, I wouldn't want lime jello. But uh, it, 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 it's, it's, as I'm saying, like you can get into breeding, but if you start using commonly available local fish, then if they breed, they breed. And if they don't, who cares, you know? Uh, and I ain't never seen anybody get upset about somebody taking a bunch of bullheads out of a body of water. And if they do, that's a Karen you just don't need to deal with. You know, there's someplace else to go. I've had pretty good luck with catfish with Velveeta too. So that's another one you can use. Velveeta? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Put a little onion bag, little <laughs> onion, you know, the fine fiber bag. Yeah. Out of there. Yeah, chicken liver works too. It just doesn't work for long. As soon as all that blood comes out of it, they stop messing with it. But yeah, there's not never ne never hurts to use worms. Everything eats a worm. What um what what kind of uh, cool content and guests do you have coming up uh, on your show? Oh, you would ask that. <laughs> my wife does all my booking. Uh, I do have a guy. No, I just had this guy. And I just had a, a custom butcher on. I got a gal coming on that's a butcher. Um, that I think she's booked next month. Uh, she's a custom exempt butcher, but she has a mobile like butcher system, like big truck. Like she can do cattle and stuff like that. And I think that's so cool that we have people that are basically circumventing these ridiculous federal regulations with these FDA processing centers and all that are like, I don't know if you, people listening to this know this, but like just to process chickens, you need an FDA employee in your factory while you're operating at all times. And the facility has to pay that person's salary and benefits. And, and not as an employee of the, 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 the processing facility, as a federal employee, with you know, you know, gravy train benefits and all. So it's that's part of what makes us producing our own food and being able to process it for customers a lot more expensive. So that's one way we have people getting around it. I got another uh, gal coming on. I met her like a year and a half ago at a place I spoke, and I don't remember her real name, but her like you know trade name is Blue Lotus. She's a young gal. This girl's gonna be a rock star in the permaculture space eventually. Um, I told her back when I met her, put in a guest form. I'll have you on. I didn't hear from her for like a year. And I think she, it was her first public speaking event, you know, your first event and you're sitting in front of 500 people. It made her a little nervous and what have you. And I think she thought maybe I would. I'm like, no, I'll have you on. She's part of a group called the Vigilantes. 
like vigilantes, but vigilantes, they do guerrilla gardens in and around Philadelphia. And like, you know, they're like, they're the basically thing is like plants don't need permission. So I've got her coming on and I know we're booked into November, but that, that's the only two that spring to mind that I can think of coming up. Uh, I got you one better on idiotic uh, government meat laws. So aquaponic cannabis okay. facilities, because they are growing a schedule one plant, can actually yeah. do meat processing and process their own fish. They have to use a third party fish uh, meat processor because the meat inspectors can't go into schedule one facility because they're federal employees of the USDA. Oh. So, so you can't actually have you sell trout or anything like that that you grow at your facility. It's ridiculous in the United States. You have to sell them through a third party. It's, it's absolutely nuts. That is, I don't, so they did it, but we're the ones stuck with it, right? I, I don't know, it's man. It's just beyond goofy, man. It makes no sense. It's one of the things, I brought this up. I've actually written a couple of senators and was like, hey, can you just make it so that we can get a meat inspector, please? Like, yeah. we should be allowed to sell stuff to customers that we grow, right? Like, isn't that a reasonable thing? The, the, the trout isn't high, okay? It's just a trout, you know? That's... Well, that was the plan was to do smoked, medicated honey trout. That was that was the original plan. But, um, uh, yeah, it's just one of those weird things where, like, I'm sure that no one that actually was, like, a lawyer looking at paperwork thought of that complication. But, like, no, it, it, you no. see this all the time with wildlife. Like, for instance, uh, in Philadelphia, they wanted to make um, all um, uh, monitor. Uh, they want to make Komodo dragons illegal, right? So they made the genus Varanus illegal. So all com all monitor lizards illegal instead. Be anything with a, a, a venom gland is technically illegal in the county of Philadelphia, which includes coral, beekeeping, like a whole bunch of stuff that is technically illegal, but never enforced. Like there's just these most idiotic rules when it comes to animals where the lawyers know nothing about biology and not writing the damn thing. So no government is a failed experiment in my opinion, as you might note from behind <laughs> me on the wall there. Um, yeah, because what you have is people making regulations about things they don't know anything about. I, I remember years ago when I first started was when the, fa the famous tubes speech happened in the Senate. I don't remember who this, uh, uh, you know, uh, antique of a Ted, man that was a senator. Ted, Ted Stevens from Alaska. Did yeah, the, yeah. One of my, well, my staff sent out an internet on Tuesday. This is a sitting senator, right? Like, and it didn't show up until Wednesday because there's tubes and the tubes are full. And you're like, oh, my God, you don't need to be making any regulations about anything. No laws about anything. You are too stupid. And I'll be fair to that guy. You just don't know. It's not even stupid. Like, why would a guy that's 90 years old, no jack shit about the Internet in 2008, right? Or it was I think he was actually 2004 when he gave that speech. Like, it, but it's. It's chronic and it's in every it's it's you know part of permaculture's pattern recognition. Once you see that pattern, you just see like, oh, they're gonna touch this, they're gonna mess shit up, they're gonna mess shit up. Like we were talking earlier about cannabis in Texas, right? And we don't have the level of cannabis freedom many states do, but we ended up with kind of like this is where sometimes they screw up to your advantage. So it's always been kind of a, a low-level misdemeanor to have a small amount of marijuana on you in Texas. And now it's like, don't go flaunting it because if you come here and you're not from here and you don't know where you're at, because you can always be some asshole. You don't know. 
but mostly you are just sent away if you have a small amount of, of, of cannabis on you now because they made CBD legal. So the little test kit that Officer Friendly drives around with in his car that turns blue or whatever, it doesn't tell him what the THC content of the bud is. It just tells him it's cannabis, which we all know it's cannabis. It smells like cannabis. It tastes like cannabis. It looks like cannabis. So all you do, well, what is that CBD bud? Well, the test they have to do exceeds the amount of the fine. And so what happened is when the legislator made the CBD legal under the farm bill, they didn't put any money in the budget to, for the testing. So like all the sheriffs and local police chiefs and stuff are like, well, we're not doing it because every time we do it, we lose money. So that's like... I can't really think of a lot of times they've screwed up and it benefited us, but that's, that's one of them right there, you know? And, and there's a lot of stuff that like your garden variety cop is just not going to enforce. Like it's actually illegal to pick a deer up off the road here. Like if one gets hit by a car, like where I lived in Pennsylvania, you call the game warden. He's supposed to come out. He never wanted to come out. He would just say, what's your name? What's your license number? And he'd give you a confirmation number over the phone. You pick the deer up. If somebody reports you as something and a different game warden from a different county showed up, then you just said, here's my number. He called it and you were good. Here, you can't even do that. Can't put it on your licenses, like a kill with your tag or whatever. But, you know, I pick them up anyway, because who's going to do something about it? Give me a fine. I'm, I'm ahead on that. Well, a couple of years ago, I, I saw one. It looked like it had just been hit. It was cold out. It was perfect. And I, but I, ha I went past the exit and it's one of these things where you take 15 minutes to come back around, but I think it's worth it. So I come back around. There's a cop standing there looking at it like this with his hands on his hips. And I stop. I'm not sure what to say. And he goes, what's up? I said, well, I'll tell you the truth. I was going to pick it up. He goes, grab an end. And he threw it in my truck with me. So my brother-in-law is a cop. I asked him, I said, do you guys even have a way to write that? He says, no, it'd have to be a game warden. You're a city cop, county county sheriff, whatever. We don't have a, a penalty in our code book to write that up. So that's along the lines. Like we probably need to wrap up soon, but I call it status jujitsu. Just how much can you get away with by using the state's own stupidity back against it? When we, we had a farm we worked with for a while in West Virginia, West Virginia is the worst state in the country for raw milk. You think you're dealing crack to deal raw milk. And a lot of places have gotten around it with things like herd shares, or you mark the raw milk as pet food. They closed all that shit. Like, you can't do anything. So we're like, is there a law that says you can't sell it as a soil amendment? Because as you know, milk is a legitimate soil amendment. So we labeled the milk as a soil amendment, and we marketed that it had been kept chilled and fresh from the time it came out of the cow. But it was a violation of both federal and state law to use this product in a manner inconsistent with its labeling. We just coffee it right off of like insect spray. Right? And had a lawyer look at it and go, I got nothing. There's always a way if you're creative because we mock them for their stupidity. We suffer for their stupidity. But we should realize their stupidity sometimes is a gift. Because the one thing about stupid people, they're easy to outsmart. That's awesome. I was just going to uh, ask you if you wanted to kind of, uh, in closing, uh, tell us about your event coming up. Sure. 
Sure. So I do a workshop here at my place every year. Uh, we eventually we had at one point we started letting 65 people in and it's it was too many for the size of the place, the parking, because we also have like another 15, 20 staff. So we, we limit it to 50 now. Uh, it will go on sale Saturday. So today, Thursday. So two days from now, 930 in the morning. If you like what you're hearing here, even though I'm nuts and you want to come to it, you don't have a lot of time to think about it. I'm not exaggerating here. It usually sells out in 10 to 20 minutes when we open it up for sale in the morning. Uh, if you go to my website and click on my Get Social tab, you can get on my Telegram group or channel. And what I do is at 9.30, I drop the link to sign up for it in there. I give everybody 10 minutes. It's kind of like the insider's pre-sale. And if it makes it that long, then I put it on the site and I put it out and it's never gone more than an hour. Um, the year COVID was like heavy lockdown shit and all. And they're like, are you doing it? I'm like, yeah, I'm doing it. We sold out in two and a half minutes. And I had 80 people on a wait list. But it, it's going to be great. You're going to be there talking. Matt Powers is going to be there. And Nick Ferguson. I have you three guys speaking back to back to back on the last day. I've got Sean Mills. He's a professional engineer in the solar space. He's going to be doing a talk on low-cost off-grid housing the first day, and then the second day, he's going to lead kind of an open discussion with ideas where we're brainstorming how to do this. I'm doing three hands-on workshops. I'm doing one on winter garden prep. I'm doing one on composting, and I'm doing one on biochar. So I'm running those the morning. There's three mornings, you know, three full days of, of classes, and we're running those on the mornings, and we have speakers in the afternoon. John Pugliano is going to be there, uh, self-made investing millionaire and a prepper and a gardener and kind of all our stuff. Ham radio operator, he'll be talking about the state of the economy. Uh, it's it's it, it's a party. It's it's 600 bucks, and I think the food's worth the money. Like the last night we do kind of our big meal, our big special meal. We have a local chef named Tim Love. He's kind of like a B-tier celebrity chef, like under the Guy Fieri's and Bobby Flay's of the world. And I get sausage from him. We do an elk and beehive cheddar and a rabbit and rattlesnake uh, sausage. So everybody gets a link, each of those and a big link, smoked um, pork shoulder, cowboy beans, all that. I mean, we're going to do... First day, we're doing center cut pork chops. So we're not throwing a, a sandwich at you or what have you. Like we feed, you know, good meals every day. Um, we have karaoke at night. We do barter blanket on Friday night. We bring Uncle Julio's in the cater Friday night. It's pretty awesome. And then uh, some of your listeners may know who Jim Shockey is. He's probably the biggest name as an outdoor writer. I had him on the show about a month ago. And I made a deal with his publisher. All my students are getting a signed copy of his new book. Uh, we try to make it extra special. And the big thing is you're kind of in an insider's club. There's actually a telegram group that you don't get to be in until you come here. There's actually a kind of almost like a call sign phrase, like a challenge phrase. It's talk to the squirrel, but you don't know what it means unless you've been here. You got to come here to find out what talk to the squirrel means. So if you tell somebody you've been here and you're part of the, you know, the inside group and you don't know what talk to the squirrel means, they don't believe you. It, it's it's a fun environment. And uh, I mean, I've seen tremendous relationships build out of it. And there might be a romantic one or two. I'm more talking about like business relationships, partnerships. The first night, Wednesday, when people get here, because most people camp on property, 
you know, people are hugging each other, hadn't seen each other in a year. They're like, I come here because this is where my friends are. So it's 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 different than any other similar type of event. And I think part of why we've done a good job with it is when I wanted to start doing these, I went to like every event I could go to permaculture, bushcraft. Like I went like six events in six months, you know, big multi-day ones. And I just looked at everything I didn't like. And I just came home with my wife and said, well, we're, I don't know how, but we're not going to do that. We're going to make sure like, you know, I went to one permaculture event and they were feeding me broccoli and tofu. And I'm like, this is a $1,200 event and I'm eating broccoli and tofu, you know, and, and I got nothing against broccoli and tofu, but it's a side. <laughs> it's not my dinner, not at 1200 bucks or, you know, I went to ones where like you had to bring your own plate and fork and shit and like we can provide flatware and freaking plates to people like so you know we when we moved here we we were like yeah we can do this now the place i had before was up in arkansas we had five acres but it was very steep and i had neighbors that really didn't want people around and what have you and it just didn't work uh where we're at now the place is flat so we can easily park the number of people we let in and it's it's pretty cool. I think you'll dig it, man. I really do. I'm excited. Um, let me, uh, uh, why don't you tell people how to find you and I'll throw the website back up on the, the screen again here for you. Sure. The website is thesurvivalpodcast.com, but if you don't want to type in too many letters, you can just use the short URL, tspc.co, tspc.co, and it'll redirect there. And you can see, you know, all my podcasts, if you look right there, going down the right side of the screen, the archives, that's that's how many episodes there are. That's, you know, you're at 2019. It keeps going, right? Uh, you can see we just did a show on home protein production and home butchering. And uh, we go all the way back to, uh, to two, oh, that March ain't supposed to be there. Hmm. Don't click on that till I get rid of it. Uh, <laughs> I, knew what I, did. Well, I, well, I think what it was is I had a, a, a post I wanted to make available but hide from the public and I didn't realize I was going to stick it there in the archive. So I just dated it so old that nobody would, would see it. Um, but yeah, you can, and I do product recommendations every day too, uh, for products that I use in my own home through Amazon affiliates. Uh, if, if it's there, I own it. I bought it. There's the workshop like that. Go back to that picture real quick. That just gives you the kind of the vibe of what's going on. That was the 2021 that picture is from, and I had just gone in the house and Gavin Newsom, because it was right up against, you know, Thanksgiving. And Gavin Newsom was talking about maybe you could have somebody over for Thanksgiving, you know, maybe one person. And I went out and told everybody that and everybody erupted, you know, and uh, these, it, the people that are listening to the audio version are you're missing out not seeing this picture. This is like a where is Waldo picture. The more you look, the more interesting it gets. And this is what I mean about the kind of people that are part of this. If you look to the left side of the screen, there's a dude with like a white, you know, visor cap on, and there's an old man behind him right there in that cowboy hat. That man's name was Steve. And uh, he had had two kidney transplants in his life. And, you know, he was one of the guys, like he was a huge part of what we did. He was the guy that when somebody was a little shy, he went up to and put his arm around them. What are you doing? Who are you? Where are you from? And he'd like figure out, well, like, who are you going to vibe with? And he would make introductions. He was just that dude. 
And he was at this one and people were saying, are you afraid of COVID? He said, I ain't scared to die. I'm on 20 years of borrowed time. I'm not having something taken away from me. He's just a tough old man. Unfortunately, the next spring he did pass away, but it wasn't, it wasn't COVID. He, uh, he had a stroke again, you know, he had had so much dialysis and so many transplants. It was just something was going to happen eventually. And it did, but like, it's, it's a family, but you will be welcome if you're a first timer. Awesome. Well, that sounds like a really cool event for sure. And uh, yeah, if you guys haven't had a chance, be sure to check it out. Uh, if you want to listen to me, I'm episode 3,115 of his show. Um yeah, he's got a, a lot of content for sure. Uh, do you know how many total hours you have? Was, was hours, lot, I but... don't know. I know I did calculate one time because they say 10,000 hours of something, you're a master at it. And uh, I know that I did kind of say average amount of time into an episode years ago. I crossed 10,000 hours. So I I don't know. I mean, 3,300 odd shows at an hour and a half average. You know, do the math, you know, it's, it's a lot and it's, there is nothing else I want to do though. Um, I've always been a teacher at heart and teachers aren't paid well, apparently. So I decided to do something where I could live my life my way, teach what I wanted. And uh, it could even be a jerk and people would like me for it. So uh, that that's actually a thing I did. A, I think it was my 3000th episode or 2500th episode. Jack, you're a jerk show. So I just had people call in and tell me why I'm a jerk. And uh, the show went like four oh, hours and they had like two minutes to leave a message. And we ended up with like a four and a half hour show. And where it came from is in the very beginning, I would talk about things like eliminating your debt and getting prepared and, and whatever. I said, you're never going to call me and go, Jack, you're such a jerk. Because of you, I have all this stupid money that I don't know what to do with. And when we were when we were locked in the house from the, the ice storm and the power was out, we had backup power. You're never going to call me a jerk for that. And then people started doing it like as a joke. Like they, I would get these emails like you're such a jerk because of you. I started a business and quit my job and stuff like that. So when we it was I think it was episode 2500. I was like, why don't y'all just call up, set up an 800 number give you two minutes calling in. We'll just play the audience talking about the impact the shows had on them. And again, it was like four and a half hours of people doing that. And that's a payday, bro. You know, money pays the bills, but impacting people's lives. That's what makes podcasting worth doing. All right. Thanks a lot. Um, I really appreciate you being on the show tonight and, uh, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, coming out to your event in November for sure. Absolutely, man. Sure. <laughs> thanks a lot. And uh, thanks everybody for watching. Um, again, you can find him at the Survival Podcast at survivalpodcast.com. Uh, you guys can find me at Potent Ponics, uh, SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, all the things. Um, they did have an issue with our podcast episodes. They're migrating them to another server. So if it isn't working currently, give it another day or two and they should all be working again. Uh, I did have to write them an email about that this week. So if you're having issues with that, uh, that is why. And if you're at the Aquaponics Association Conference this weekend, uh, be sure to check it out. I'll be speaking on Saturday at 4 o'clock uh, Mountain Time. All right, guys. Thanks a lot for watching. Well, we'll catch you guys again next week. Thanks a lot, Jack.